0: There is in the world today really a full court on the preservation of life. Man is looking for every possible way to preserve life, to lengthen life, to extend life. Why? Because we want to live. Man has within him a desire to live, to survive. In recent years, we've had debates in this country across the world. Debates over certain types of research. Just a few years ago, there was a big debate in the country about stem cell research. The big thrust towards stem cell research was that, well, we need to do this because we're going to discover, we're going to to get at some very important discoveries that are going to help people, that are going to cure diseases, that are going to help people live longer. And so by doing some research, we may be able to extend and lengthen life for another five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, maybe 25, 30, who knows? We may, we may find a way to just extend life. If you want to know more about this and the desire to lengthen life, just Google long life and the board of Google. yeah. The the super rich, the super elite, the rich, they are not shy about what they're looking into and where they're putting their money and the research and the companies and the startups that they're funding to do exactly what I'm talking about tonight. The Bible states clearly that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and the result of that sin is this, the wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man once to die. But I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to live forever. You know, God doesn't want you to die either. In fact, Peter put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'll have it on the screen for you. He said this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to first come to repentance because he knows that if you'll come to repentance, you'll come to life. You'll come to life. Tonight in our study in chapter 42, well, we're looking in in this part of Genesis, we're studying the life of Joseph. And when when we're studying the life of Joseph, we're talking about how last week, how he has been elevated to second in command of all of Egypt because he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh's dreams were interpreted in such a way that there would be seven years of plenty of of abundance as far as the crops and all of it in the land. And then those seven years of plenty would be followed by seven lean years, ugly, lean, tough, drought, famine years. And so after the interpretation and all of it, Pharaoh exalted, he elevated Joseph to that place of second in command, so that the nation would be saved, so that the nation of Egypt would be saved, and of course, that would extend to, to other peoples around. So the famine in the land was harsh, and in a, in a harsh famine, I mean, back in, in those days, I mean, you know, you'd just have widespread death. You know, you have a famine, you just have widespread death. People wouldn't make it. But tonight we're going to see that even through the famine that God had provided a (laughs) way, amen, for his people that he had promised, that he had entered into covenant relationship with, that he's going to bring about salvation for them, that they're going to continue to live. We'll see this. And we're going to connect the dots between that and how God worked that out and how he has done it in our lives specifically through saving us. In our lives, And so, if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to take a look at this chapter. Um, the first point is this, seeking salvation, seeking salvation. There are those out there seeking salvation. They may be seeking it through a, through a genetic study of some kind, but they're still seeking. Let's pick it up. Chapter 42, verse 1. It says this, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who had journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams, which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your sons are, your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are 12 brothers, the one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But let's keep going. Let's keep going. 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies in the manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you should be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies so he put them all together in prison three days seeking salvation you see there's a famine in the land and death is kind of there's a there's a kind of a foreboding aspect here that the famine is harsh and And if we don't do something, we're going to die. Uh, and, And, you know, I don't know when it happens. I mean, you begin to contemplate your own death. And, you know, certainly, you know, probably doesn't happen when you're a kid. You know, I mean, it doesn't happen when you're nine. But maybe like, you know, later you begin to think about the fact that, hey, you know, people die, you know, and I'm going to die. And what are we going to do about that? So they're realizing, hey, this famine's harsh. If we don't do something, we're going to die. So Jacob find, finds out that there's grain in Egypt. And so uh, he sends his sons to go buy uh, grain in Egypt. The, the, the chapter here tells us Joseph was the governor of Egypt, kind of setting the stage for uh, what's going what's to play out here and uh and so Jacob sends his 10 sons to Egypt to buy grain and he tells them go and buy some grain for them that that we may live and not die right <laughs> this is what I'm talking about tonight that we may live we we need to do something here that we may live they want to buy grain the grain would be their salvation we know from the bible they're they're going to go down and buy grain okay now we know from the bible that that you know Again, we've sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory, and the wages of sin is death, and so we're going to die. It's appointed unto, de- unto man once to die. So we're, we're going to die, so how, what are we going to do about this? Well, we're, there's no place where we can go. There's no other land where we can you know, get on a journey and say, okay, we're going to go down here, and we're going to buy something that's going to help us live forever. There, there's no place to go. There's one place to go, and that's the Lord, amen? There's one place that we have to go, and that's Jesus Christ. I've quoted this verse already two or three times, but I might as well throw it up again on the, ver- on the, on the screen for you so you can look at it. Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You always have to keep reading past the butt. amen? <laughs> the first part of that sentence is rather harsh, but if you get past the butt, you realize that God did something about that situation, amen? The wages of sin of de- is death, but the gift of God. There, there's a payment for sin, and that's death, but then there's a gift, and it's contrasted here. Paul contrasts it. There's things that you go out and work for and do and whatever, and here you go. Here's your payment. But then when you come to salvation, when you come to the Lord, it's not like that. It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's no place where you can go and buy the gift of eternal life, but there's a place that you can get it for free as a gift, and God wants to give it to you. You notice that Jacob sends his 10 sons minus Benjamin, down there to buy grain. He says, I'm not going to send Benjamin uh, because I'm not going to let anything happen to him like what happened to Joseph, his brother. And so he sends the 10. Now, when you look at 10, 10 is a number that is kind of in the Bible. It speaks of, well, it's, it, it's, it's, you're reminded of the 10 commandments, right? You say 10 and you say Bible. Well, the 10 commandments. And the 10 commandments are, uh, you know, the 10 in that sense is, is, is a type of the law. There's the 10 commandments. And the law is represented in the 10 commandments. The, it's called the Decalogue, the 10 words. And some try to be saved by the law. So there's a focus on works and earning your way. So we're going to, 10 of us are going to go down and we're going to buy grain so that we don't die. Ten, through these Ten Commandments, we're going to live and we're going to do and we're going to earn salvation. And it don't work like that. And so there's a focus on, on works and earning your way. And they get down to, to Egypt and Joseph was the governor and he was the one who controlled the selling of the grain in Egypt. Now Joseph here, as we've talked about for these, these few chapters already, and we've mentioned it, I think, all the way back, as far back as chapter 38. Joseph is a type of Christ in the Bible. A type is kind of a, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you know, best way to understand it is kind of a foreshadowing. It's a, it's, a, it's a type, it's a person, it's an object that points forward to something else, something that completes uh, the, 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 the typology. And so you have Joseph, who in a lot of his ways, his character, uh, who he is, is, is a picture for us of the person of Christ. Joseph is the governor of Egypt and he's got control over the grain. He's got control over what's gonna keep people alive in this famine. And Jesus has control over the riches of heaven, amen? He is the one who distributes the riches of heaven. He's the one who distributes salvation. He's the one who paid the price. He's the one who paid the debt. He's the one who paid your debt, the big one that you owed that you could never pay. He's the one. He's the one that distributes the riches of heaven. And Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. I have it up on the screen in the New Living Translation. It says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. What's that? But God is so rich in mercy. Yes. He's rich. <laughs> There's, I mean, he's got storehouses. I mean, Joseph had storehouses of grain. Jesus has got storehouses of mercy overflowing. He's rich in mercy, and he wants to give it out. And, and, and you have to come to him to get the mercy. You have to come to Christ. You can't get it from anywhere else. There's nobody else thinking, hey, I got some extra here. No, you can't get it out on the street. You got to go to him. Well, you can get it on the street. You just got to ask Jesus. He's with, he, you can find him on the street. In fact, you can't go anywhere where he isn't, and so how close is he that you can ask him? Well, he's as close as the breath in your mouth right now. That's how close salvation is to you right now. If you'll open your mouth and confess that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he's rich in mercy, and he loved you so much that even though you were what? Dead. You were dead. I mean, it wasn't even like you were going to die and we got to stop this from happening. No, it's already a done deal. You're dead in your sins. And there's only one thing that you can do about that is if you'll come to God, he's going to do what? Verse 5, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Wow. His brothers, Joseph's brothers come in. They bow, what do they do? They bow down. Now, if you've been paying attention in the study, immediately your mind went ding, 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 ding. Wait, wait wasn't there some dreams that Joseph had that got him into some trouble about you know, stalks of wheat bowing down and his brothers got mad and the sun, moon, and the stars? Well, this is at the complete fulfillment of that, okay? That's coming, that's coming. This is just kind of a prelude uh, to that event. So we've got a little taste of it. Ten of the brothers come in. And bow down to Joseph and Joseph saw and recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him did you catch that when we read that it says he recognized them but they did not recognize him and this is the biggest problem this is the bit this is an obstacle for people in receiving salvation uh, there's, there's one person that died on the cross for your sins. There's no other person. There's the, Jesus Christ, who's the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh, he became a man. He lived a perfect life, and he went to a hill called Calvary, and he was crucified there. He was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, he was resurrected out of that tomb, and he's the one that can save your soul, okay? Everybody else that, 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 that supposedly was a great person that said some wonderful things that people wrote down and quote to this day, guess what? They're still in the grave. All right, Buddha still in the grave, Confucius, okay, keep the list going. They're all still there. I've been to Jerusalem, I've been in the empty tomb, and he's not there, he's risen from the dead, and he's the one that's going to be able to give you eternal life, amen? But you gotta recognize who it is that can give you the eternal life, and this is the problem. They, he recognizes you. But do you recognize Jesus, the son, who died on the cross for you and gave gave everything up for you because he wanted you to live, because he did something about that which separated you from him. The Jews, this kind of points at the picture of that the Jews uh, did not recognize Jesus when he came, right? John put it this way in the Gospels. He said he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? There, there, just to give you a picture from the tabernacle. There was the, 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 uh, God had the, the Israelites build this amazing tabernacle with all this embroidery and unbelievable, you know, scarlet, you know, threading and unbelievable tapestry and all this. And then they put this, uh, you know, ugly, you know, leather cover on it. And, and what, what it was is it's a picture for people who look at the outward. I think it was Isaiah who put it this, there was nothing that drew us to him. He was comely in his appearance And and so people walk by and they go, they look at it and they go, well, what's that? That's not, that's not salvation. That person can't give me salvation. You gotta look past the covering. Underneath that covering was the tabernacle, was the exact way to receive salvation and to come back into the holy of holies and come to the throne and to the mercy seat of uh, of where you can meet Jesus and have life forevermore. You see it on the cross. You see the picture, the same picture, you see it in the two thieves. One looked at Jesus and scoffed at him and said, well, if you, if, if you said you're all this and a bag of chips, get us down off this cross. And he scoffed. He looked at the badger skin. The badger skin was the ugly covering. Underneath was a royal scarlet covering. He, he saw the badger skin, scoffed at the badger skin. It was the other thief who said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. One man didn't recognize. One man recognized. The man who recognized the Lord Jesus turned to him and said this, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's very important. Very important. You say, well, I've tried to look into Jesus Look into him. I think there's a song. There's a good song, good Larry. Why don't you look into Jesus? You know he's got the answer. Amen? Yeah, look that up on iTunes after the service, okay? <laughs> hey, let me read this, what, what Paul wrote about this not, this not recognizing Jesus, okay? He, he, he spends some time in, in the book of Romans writing about how the people didn't understand, didn't recognize In Romans chapter 11, I'll pick it up, verse 7, but you can read 9, 10, and 11. Read those three chapters if you really want to dive deeper. I'm going to just read a few verses here. Paul said this. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. And to this very day, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What's he saying? God the Jews did not recognize Christ. The floodgates were opened when God, through the apostles, opened up salvation to the Gentiles. And now what Paul's saying is because the Gentiles are coming in and being saved, that the Jews are gonna to have to deal with the fact of what's going on. And he says that it's going to bring them to that place of saying, I recognize, I recognize. And we're gonna see that where they are gonna recognize. But, but before this, they, they haven't recognized him. They said... Well, he, he spoke roughly to them. Look at that. Joseph, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had. Verse 9. Or verse 8. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies, and you come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And so then they're pleading their case. Look, we're 12 brothers, one died, one's back home. There's 10 of us here. We're, we're, we're good people. We're good guys, right? They're trying to plead their case. Later, they would go back to their, their father and report, he spoke roughly to us. He, he, he spoke to us roughly. He spoke through an interpreter, and he spoke to them in a foreign language. So here he is speaking some Egyptian dialect and speaking through an interpreter, roughly to them. And this is another reason why the Jews, the, the gospel of Christ and, and Jesus specifically, has become a stumbling block to the, to the, to the Jew and to the, to the modern Jew, is that he, he spoke to them in a foreign language. The Gospels are written in Greek and not Hebrew. And even though they're written by, well, three out of the four were written by Jews. Three out of the four Gospels, right? One by Luke, who was a Greek. Um, I'm giving Peter credit for Mark. <laughs> um he spoke to them in a, in a foreign language. Well, we, we, Greek. W, why why did you speak to us in Hebrew? You know? Paul wrote his epistles in Greek. And it's not that they did not understand it intellectually. They don't accept it theologically or linguistically. They, they reported that he spoke to them roughly. The law speaks to us roughly of our sins. It, it, can, it convicts us roughly. You know, James put it this way: in the, he says, the, the Word of God is like a mirror. And when you look at it, it tells you the truth about what you look like. Okay, so when you feel like a little spot on your forehead and you're like, Oh no, what, what's going on? Oh, great, it feels like a pimple. I bet that's red. I bet that don't look good, right? You go to the mirror. Oh, sure enough, there it is, right? The mirror don't lie. (laughs) And the Bible doesn't lie to you when it tells you exactly what your condition is. It speaks to you, and it can speak in a rough way. Let me put it to you this way, because this is the way that Paul put it. In Galatians... Chapter 3, verse 24, you'll see it on the screen. He said, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In some translations, this, this is like a, this is, uh, the word there is pedagogue. It's the idea of a schoolmaster, a taskmaster, right? The law is like a taskmaster. It's like a schoolmaster. You need to do this, you need to do that. You didn't do it. You fell short. The the law is a tutor. It's It's a teacher. It's a taskmaster to bring us to Christ. The law should bring us to Christ when we look into the perfect law of God and we realize that we have fallen short, that we have not kept the commandments. You say, Well, I've kept the commandments. Well, just go back and read the fifth chapter of Matthew and see how you stack up. <laughs> With Jesus' words, he says, you have heard it said not to commit adultery. I say to you, if you've looked upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. If you've had hate for your brother, you've already committed these things in your heart. So the, the law speaks to us roughly, but it's a tutor, it's a teacher, to bring us to Christ so that we can have eternal life, amen? Joseph accuses them of being spies. They deny it, and they say that they are honest men. Sometimes people ask, some, Sometimes people will, when they're confronted by the law at first, They'll, they'll, they, they want to put on a good front. I've seen this where you know Ray Comfort is out there, right? Anybody know Ray, way of the Master? You know, he he goes out there and tries to lovingly, lovingly confront people with the law of God, and people like to put on a, a good show, you know, like yeah, I I do pretty good, I do pretty good. Then they then he presses, and they realize no, we, I've fallen short. I've fallen short of the glory. He, Joseph accuses them of being spies. They deny it, and they say they're honest men. But are they? But are we? We like to think of ourselves in the best possible light, but in reality, if we look at ourselves, if I, we look at our lives without Christ, we're, we're in a wretched condition. Without, without God. Without God in this world, without Christ, we're in a wretched condition. And so Joseph tells them, he, tell, he tests them. He tells them that he will keep them in prison and that one of them, or he's gonna, he's gonna send one of them back. He reverses course later, but he, he's gonna send one of them back and bring back their brother Benjamin. And he keeps them in jail for three days. Let's pick it back up. Secondly, tonight, showing remorse. Pick it back up, verse 18. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and when we we would not hear. Therefore the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, and saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy?' And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. And then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So you're seeking salvation. The way, the pathway, really the first step towards it, is we've got to have remorse. We have to show remorse. We have to have a sorrow, and not just any kind of sorrow. It has to be a specific kind of sorrow, and we'll talk, to, talk about that in a second. Now, Joseph comes to them on the third day, and he tells them, do this and live. Do this and live. He says to them, do this and live, for I fear God. And the word that is written here in the Hebrew, of course this was written in Hebrew, and the interpreter would have said this, was Elohim. And so it is the Hebrew God, and it is the creative name for God. He says, do this and live, for I fear God. Now, there's always a command. Of, there's always a command. The, the command is, is something simple, but it's basically a demonstration of ascending to faith in Christ. You know, there was the there was the command of the, 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 the Syrian uh, when he had leprosy when he when he when he went and, when the when his servant girl, the, the Syrian commander who had leprosy, and his, his Hebrew uh, servant girl said, Oh yeah, well there's if you go to Israel, there's a guy there that could heal you. So he goes down there. And Elisha won't even come out and meet him, but he sends word. And it, the, the command was, go and dip in the, in the river. And he's, he's like, well, wh- why would I come all the way down here to dip in this river? I, we've got better rivers than this, right? That was his attitude. But, but see, he was missing the point. See, there's always a command for the healing, for the... For the to receive the salvation, the command is ascending to faith in the God who's going to bring that healing, who's going to bring that salvation. Amen? So do this and live. After three days in custody, Joseph altered his plan in suggesting keep only one of the, peop- one of the guys in prison. While the other nine returned, he retained Simeon. While the others returned home to Canaan with grain to retrieve their youngest brother, Benjamin. So you're, so you're going to go and you're going to get your brother, Benjamin, and bring him back here, and, and then you're going to prove that you're not spies, that you're honest men. So what did they say while they were, were grappling with this? They, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. Suddenly, the guilt of what they had done to Joseph was just upon them. Suddenly, that just flooded into the situation. We're being required of the blood of our, of our brother who we, ki- who we had killed, basically. It's, it's upon us, and we're guilty of this. We've done this. Sorrow is what, what is needed to bring us to God, but it's a, a certain kind of sorrow. Judas had sorrow, for what he did in betraying Jesus. Remember, Judas was, uh, was the disciple of Jesus who betrayed him with a kiss for a payment of 30 pieces of silver, right? And after he did that, after he betrayed Jesus, he was sorrowful and he went out and he tried to return the cash and then he went out and hung himself. He was just distraught over what he had done. And see, this is an example of an ungodly sorrow, a sorrow that just kind of just, it's a sorrow of the destruction that has come upon your life. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I'll have it on the screen. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There it is in one verse. <laughs> right? What's that? Worldly sorrow brings death. So people can be. So what that's telling me is people can actually, you know, feel even bad about, and it's not. It's not a godly sorrow that brings them to the foot of the cross, that brings them to Christ, that brings them to repentance. And this is what is needed. Look at verse twenty-two. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. This is, this is the heart of, of Reuben. Joseph turned himself away. They had no idea he could hear them, what they were saying. Can you imagine that? I'd like to see the videotape of this. Honestly. This is one of those places, I remember, you, know, you remember reading this, right? Every time you come to this chapter, you're like, wow, I'd like to, I'd like to see how that really went down. He, it, it, he was overcome by what they were saying so much that he went in the back room and wept. And when he returned, he bound Simeon. And he sent them, he sent the other nine. So he took, he took Simeon into custody and he released the other nine with grain and all that. So let's pick it up, verse 25, and wrap this up. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of the sack. And so he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? And then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father to this day in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the lord of the country, said to this, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. And I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. And then it happened, as they emptied their sacks... That surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you, but put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. And if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Sorrow, a godly sorrow, will bring you to surprising grace. Surprising grace. When they got all the way back to their father, they told him all that had happened. They opened their sacks. When they opened their sacks, they were surprised. Surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And God's grace is just like that. Surprisingly, it's it's surprising grace. It's amazing grace. They each got back. Now, this brought fear on their hearts, but they didn't know that Joseph was being merciful to them, that Joseph was actually being bountiful to them, that he was giving them grace. He was giving them mercy. He could have had them locked up. He He could have literally commanded and had all of them locked up. He did have them locked up, but he could have left them locked up. He was in charge. He was the governor of Egypt. He could have brought down, he could have gotten revenge. He could have taken his revenge. You you realize, Joseph, how long he sat in prison? Framed for what he did not do, sat in prison, and here's his brothers back. After all these years he spent in prison, he he could have brought revenge against them. But what does he do? He gives them mercy. He gives them grace. And that's exactly what some people look at God and they think God's going to take revenge out on them. God, is, God wants to pour grace into your life. And no matter how bad, no matter how sorrowful, no matter how gripping the despair, no, how, no, how, no matter how dark the inside of our hearts may be, there's the love of God available to us. There's the mercy of God. There's the amazing grace of God. I want to finish up here. By telling you the story, and you've heard this story, and I think Mary Jo has told this story. The story of the song Amazing Grace. John Newton, the author of the song, was born in 1725 in London. His mother, who was a godly woman and who taught him to pray as a child, died when he was only seven years old. And he had only two years at school, and at the age of 11, his father, who was a sea captain, took him to sea for the first time. His seafaring life is well known and included being wrecked, becoming the captain of a slave trade ship, and also a slave himself to a black woman on the Guinea coast. He was rescued by a friend of his father who was a ship's captain as well. Newton lit a fire of driftwood on the shore to attract the attention of any passing ship. In the providence of God, this friend of his father who was searching for him sent a long boat ashore to investigate and John was rescued. And he was on this ship returning across the Atlantic when it encountered a great storm which was threatening to engulf it. This took place on the 10th of March, 1748. That 10th of March, says Newton, is a day, of much, day much to be remembered by me, and I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748, for on that day the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The storm was terrific, And when the ship went plunging down into the trough of the sea, few on board expected her to come up again. The hold was rapidly filling with water as Newton hurried to his place at the pumps. And he said to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. His own words startled him. Mercy, he said to himself in astonishment, mercy, mercy, what mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. About six in the evening, the hold was free from water, and then came a gleam of hope. And I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor, and I began to pray, and I could not utter the prayer of faith, and I could not draw near to be reconciled to God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of life of of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. In the gospel, says Newton, I saw at least a peradventure of hope, but on every other side, I was surrounded with black, unfathomable despair. On the peradventure of hope, Newton staked everything. He sought mercy and found it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace, a surprising grace. We have to be amazed continually of the grace of God. And when I'm struck with the fact that he looked, you know, when, when darkness is kind of clouding in and you look around and you really, like you're looking for a ray of hope and it's like there is no ray of hope. I look around and it's just despair on every side. But there's always a ray of hope because God is there and if you'll reach out to him tonight if you'll reach out to him tonight he's going to cut through the fog and the darkness of your despair and the condition of your heart and he's going to bring his light into your heart. He's going to bring his life into your life, into your heart and he's going to bring you to life. He's going to bring you from the darkness into light and from death into life. When the Brothers, when they saw the money, they were afraid and they had a fear that they would be mistaken for thieves. And this is kind of where the chapter leaves off with Reuben basically begging his dad to be able to take Benjamin down and Jacob pleading with him and saying, Look, you're going to bring my gray hair to a, a, ter- a terrible, horrific sorrow. Um, but we've got to see in this chapter the life of Jesus the salvation of Christ and how God works and how we can find that in in a godly sorrow and knowing that there's there's a surprising grace that's available to every single one of us. And no matter how dark the despair, that his love will come into your life if you'll open up. And I'll close with this. John Newton said, look, I couldn't even... It was like he he couldn't even formulate the words of a prayer. He said, I probably sounded like the ravens just cackling, cawing. But God heard what was in my heart. And God will hear what's in your heart if you'll come to him.